Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of the show, if you would like to have some uh, feedback, if you have any, if you have any feedback, if you want to share your feedback, if you want to just give me a call, uh, you can. You can call the listener hotline. That number is 303 303- 8320217 and I could uh, put you here on the old program. You can also contact me on any of the uh, contact links that are on the description of this show as well. You can get a hold of my uh, Facebook, my Twitter, email, all that stuff. It's right there on the in the uh, description of the show. And oh man, did I did something cool this past week. A couple of things cool I went on. Two different tours on the new Interstate I70 tunnel. That was built on the north side of downtown Denver. Now, the first one was a media tour, so there were some other reporters along with me. And then a few days later, there is a public tour, and I took that with my kids, and they had a ball. It was actually a lot of fun, and my wife actually had some fun, too. She said, this is pretty neat. Yeah, it is pretty neat. (laughs) They built a brand-new interstate that's a lowered part of the interstate, and they're taking down this 60-year-old uh, bridge structure. So it is it, it is really neat to be able to see the new and the old and, and how it can uh, change and see all the new technology. And tu- you never thought there'd be so much cool technology in a tunnel, but actually there is. And in just a minute, I'm going to be speaking with Bob Hayes. Bob is the director for the Central 70 Project. And we're not talking about the traffic shift or any of that stuff because the traffic will be shifted from the elevated portion to the lowered section coming up this weekend uh, for all the folks here in Metro Denver. That's going to be a big deal because it's going to change the way the, the drive looks forever as we're going to be going from up above down to below. And uh, so we're not going to really talk about that because the general audience wants to know about other cool things. And I think there's a lot of cool things as part of this project, including not only creating this lowered section of a freeway with nearly a dozen crossroads and railroads that go over it now. I mean, it's a major challenge for the project director and for the team at Kiwit Construction doing the work. And I'm going to speak to Bob here in just a bit uh, and and talk about the technology of the tunnel and how they dealt with the flooding because you're going from uh, un, uh, up above to underground. So how do you deal with the water and and any of the flooding potential? And how do you deal with the lighting? And how do you? There's a lot of interesting parts of of uh, this project, and we'll talk to Bob coming up in just a minute. But first, I, I wanted to mention that in the last episode, I was talking about the E Trip program that employer-based traffic reduction program. Well, I went through the uh, program with you. I you know, read the proposal. We talked about uh, the, the, the issue with uh, Russell Haythor, the, report, the reporter who covered the story, uh, to get some more in-depth on it. And we posted the story on our main Denver 7 Facebook page, and it received, uh, uh, just right after we posted it, it, it got up to nearly 400 comments. And I just grabbed a couple of the ones that were on the top there. And and one person said, this issue is one of the best examples I can think of when it comes to the urban-rural divide. Urban planners sit there scratching their heads and wonder why more people don't use public transit. Meanwhile, many, if not most, people who work in the core of the city live at least 20 to 30-minute car ride away. The solutions they have don't really help that crowd. 
Showers and lockers are great if you're within running biking distance to work. Doesn't work for most. And what that person is talking about is one of the incentives that employers would give employees to ride a bike to work or walk to work is having a shower so you can change your clothes. Well, how are you going to do that on your, how are you going to bring all your stuff on the bike unless you can change, maybe you can. Uh, I don't think I want to bring a full suit uh, into the ride. Well, first it's too far for me to ride my bike or to walk um, because I live a half hour drive away from downtown Denver. So that's way too far. And I'm not going to do that at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, But for a lot of people, that's just not a practical solution. Anyway, uh, here's another comment. Ride sharing is, pardon my French, a complete pain in the butt. I guess it's fine if your entire office comes into work and leaves work at the exact same time every single day, but that doesn't describe most people's jobs, not to mention the sheer inconvenience of not being able to run an errand after work, hit the gym on the way in, whatever. And even better solutions, not mentioned, that revolve around beefing up the public transit infrastructure aren't great. Increasing bus routes, installing more light rail, things like that. In a city like this, even the best public transit is going to double or even triple your commute time from what you can do in a car. I saw this same debate play out when I lived in San Diego. This is the commenter, not me. There, a one and a half hour car commute time are common due to how expensive houses are even a little closer to the city core. Any talk of trying to force commuters to use public transit always struck me at, as, a, as out of touch and elitist. The rich are fine with biking and using public transit because they can afford to live in the city. Everyone else, not so much. All right, and then there's this point of view. It doesn't have to work for everyone to be a good idea. If a hypothetical employee lives near any light rail station, they have an easy commute downtown provided by the employer. Pushing employers to provide infrastructure and resources towards alternative forms of transportation absolutely can be part of the solution for reducing emissions and traffic. There are a ton more comments, um, some predictable, others insightful. Uh, of course, I would see like, like to see less traffic. I think most people would like to see less traffic congestion. And, and there's a lot of people that want to keep working from home. There's a lot of people who can't. You can't have your nurse or your doctor or your plumber, or your electrician, or your chef, the person driving your uh, your Uber, uh, working from home. There are a lot of jobs that can't. There are some that can work from home, and that will take off some of the pressure from the road infrastructure right now. We'll see how this all plays out. It'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Um, see where it goes. I, I Do I know? No, I don't. But uh, I'll keep you posted and see what happens. All right, shifting gears completely. Imagine looking at an interstate that's above ground. It's basically a bridge that runs several miles long and then being asked to put that same highway underground. That's what's happening to part of Interstate 70 on the north side of Denver. It's called the Central 70 Project, and it's one of the largest highway projects in Colorado history. Now, as this project comes to a major milestone, moving traffic off the bridge and down to the tunnel, I wanted to talk more about the challenges and the successes of this massive project. And joining me now to talk about it is the project director for the CDOT Central 70 Project, Bob Hayes. Bob, thanks for being here on the world-famous Driving Your Crazy podcast. Thanks, Jason. Really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about uh, a fantastic project. 
Now, before we get into the engineering of this project, let's talk a little bit more about Bob and your path to a project director. Is engineering something you always wanted to do? How'd you get over to CDOT? So, so really, it has been something I've always been interested in. In high school, I had several internships uh, with the city and county of Broomfield right here in Colorado and uh, kind of learned the, the development side of it and the, just kind of pivoted into the, the roadway side as I went to school um, and, and really got amazing opportunities within CDOT uh, to work on the US-36 uh, phase one and phase two design build projects, which were uh, very large projects in their own right. And then the, the timing just worked out perfectly for me to be able to come down and uh, help, help deliver the, the largest project that CDOT has ever done. So you're a Colorado native? I am a Colorado native. Not many of those around. So you've seen the transformation of the highways and all the interstates around Metro Denver over your years. Yeah, absolutely. And and the approach to try and build our way out of them and, and that not working quite as well as one would hope. And, uh, you know, pivoting now to a, an approach where we're uh, adding express lanes to, to projects, whether it's I-25 or US-36 or C-470 and now I-70 to give folks uh, an option or an alternative, whether it's you're, you're on a on a bus uh, and taking uh, the opportunity to get guaranteed travel time that way or. Um, you're in an HOV vehicle or ultimately willing to pay the toll uh, in our express lanes. It's just all about giving people uh, options to try and get that travel time to be more guaranteed. Let's talk about the problem with the old I-70 elevated portion. For years and years, I would see uh, holes over there that's in the bridge deck or on the bridge, pieces of concrete that have fallen off that are on the ground right <laughs> near the bridge. I mean, it was in really bad shape. Can you talk more about how bad the actual bridge is? Absolutely. So bridge was, uh, the viaduct was constructed um, starting in the late 1950s, uh, opened to traffic uh, in 1963, I believe, uh, was the official open date. So certainly aged infrastructure, right? Every, everything was done differently back then. Um, narrow shoulders, uh, traffic lanes not quite as wide. And so that, that led us to the point of uh, saying that this was a functionally obsolete bridge. And so what that really means is it doesn't mean that it's it's going to fail and there's a safety issue there. But what that means is um, really just the standards aren't up to date. So we don't have the, the shoulder that we would have today. We don't have uh, the lane width that we would have today. And so some of those standards have evolved over time. And so um, that, that really gets to the, the design aspect of it. But then as we look at um, the way this bridge was constructed, and it is a, it's a continuous bridge uh, for several miles, that bridge as it gets warmer and gets colder, it, it flexes over time. And so the bridge actually moves. Um, and so we we built uh, expansion joints into that structure. And those joints were designed to take up and allow the bridge to, to move in the flex. And over time, those expansion joints wore down and uh, really caused some uh, significant challenges for us. And uh, Really, in the early 2000s, late late 90s, early 2000s, uh, we, we spent uh, several million dollars uh, locking those joints up, and so we we knew that there, it was just a time where it was it was uh, we needed to lock those joints up to prevent any future uh, degradation of the joint itself, and and ultimately have some challenges with with the bridge deck. And so we locked the joints up. Uh, we actually went through and post tensioned some of the pier caps, and so that means. 
uh, really drilling through the pier caps and installing long steel rods. And then you, you basically pull those rods tight. Uh, and what that does is it, it, it uh, creates some strength uh, in, in shear. Um, so, so when these stresses start to happen on those pier caps, it actually reinforces the pier cap and, and makes it stronger. Well, those, those um, post-tension rods that we put in there were under so much stress that we've actually seen some of them um, fail and, and come shooting out the sides. And, and certainly That's not... A, that uh, sounds scary when you say a pier cap, when a big metal rod is shooting out of the side. That sounds yep. that doesn't sound good. It's not, not ideal, not ideal at all. And so um, fortunately, where, where that happened, um, you know, no, no one was at risk and, and there were no issues there, but, um, you know, all of the band-aids that we've been putting on this structure, it's just time for it to go. And, and we knew that we needed to replace it. Um, and then, then really it comes down to what are we going to do? H how are we going to replace it? And is it simply building another viaduct, uh, you know, w work out the phasing scheme to be able to just replace it as is. Um, and in kind, or do we do something different and, and better? And, and so that's really uh, how we got to where we're at with, um, uh, frankly, a, an awesome project to be a part of and, and to go out and build. When you talk about a bridge deck moving, I don't think a lot of people understand how much these structures can move depending on the temperatures. And I'm, they've probably gone driven over these bumps, these uh, the uh, uh, expansion joints, and they just why? Why is there a bump here? It, that's all the normal driver driver probably thinks. But the bridges can actually move, and those structures can actually move quite a bit. So, how much did those pieces move? And then when you well put it all together, was it then one big structure that would move, or it was just so tight that it just never moved, and it started flinging out those pieces of of metal out of it? Yeah. So the idea was to get rid of the. Um, we had what what's called intermediate expansion joints, so they, they were quite frequent. And then we'd have a major expansion joint closer to the end of the, the viaduct itself. And so we were locking up those intermediate expansion joints to prevent them from moving. But then there was an allowable uh, movement at the very ends of, of the structure to allow it to flex and move. Um, but obviously, when you have such a giant structure locked together, it we knew... That, that band aid that we were putting on it was going to be a short term fix and and really it was it was an effort to uh, get some additional longevity out of it, uh, knowing that central seventy or or something like central seventy was coming along to replace it uh, but to your to your first point, yeah, our bridges um, we put expansion joints in all the bridges uh, these things do move um, some of them can move up to four or five inches um, depending on uh, the weather temperatures. Um, Steel bridges move a lot. Uh, you, you just the the steel itself, as it gets warmer, it expands. As it gets cooler, it contracts. Uh, and so you you we put expansion joints on there to to allow you know zero to three inch movement. And and we actually have a three to six inch joint we also use. Uh, so yeah, you're you're not kidding. These things uh, can can move quite a bit in the temperature. But the good news is we we know that. I mean that that's why we go to engineering school, and and that's really why we've designed. Uh, the the bridges the way we do we allow for that flexure that movement to to occur um, and, and so it's it's just a natural natural part of building a bridge frankly 
And, and so there really wasn't any way of saving this bridge. It was just too far gone, too many fixes on it, and it would have been probably just too expensive to continue to maintain it. So it, it either had to come down and be replaced, or we have to go with the with the tunnel that we'll talk about in just a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, it was it was time time to be done. We designed structures for uh, a lifespan. Um, most of the new structures we put up today ha- have a 50-year life, uh, and this, this bridge is at that lifespan right now. And, and so absolutely uh, just not any value for that money uh, if we just kept throwing dollars at it and putting Band-Aids on it. There were a couple of things I did like about the way I-70 was over there, where you could drive on 46th Avenue under the bridge. It, it's always, for me, I don't know why, I thought it was always neat because it's right near the Coliseum, that little portion, and the National Western Complex, and you're walking under the interstate. I just thought that was always a little interesting. You would get flooding up there sometimes, and then you'd have these uh, trucks hitting these big pools of water, splashing it down on the people below or the businesses below. Uh, and I'm actually surprised that we haven't seen more crowds crashes coming off the bridge there have been some uh where people have come off the bridge but very infrequently yeah agreed and you know that that's why we have the guardrail up top but uh to to try and make that not occur right that is a that is something we don't want to see happening but yeah you know it's it's unique um certainly with with 46th avenue and then the other thing uh the union pacific railway uh has one of their busiest uh, yards just adjacent to I-70 there, um, down closer to, uh, between York and, and Brighton. And so as 46th traveled west, you actually had to go, you were under I-70 already, and then you went under the Union Pacific Railway there as well. And so we had kind of a, a three-tier structure at that point. And it's just, it is very interesting, but uh, certainly, um I, I think the community would say a bit of an eyesore uh, through this stretch. And so I, I think we're we're definitely looking forward to uh, being able to bring this bridge down. So there were a lot of ideas, like you said, to replace it, to maybe change I-70, the entire pattern, just, just actually cut that par- portion of the interstate off to all traffic and just make it a local road, uh, bring the bridge down and just make it a local road and then use 270 I-76 or 270 I-25 and become that's the new I-70. But the ultimate decision was to create this tunnel going underground, going basically from a, a bridge and then going not just to ground level, but going totally underground. How much of a challenge was it when you looked at all the crossroads, that railroad that you mentioned, the businesses that are right next to the highway? They say, all right, we, we have this bridge. It has to come down. Now we're going to do a tunnel. I mean, when, you, when you're just all of a sudden presented with that idea, you go, all right, now what? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it was certainly unique and, and um as you you know, as you start to peel back the layers of the onion and the challenges that that we were going to face uh, associated with this, you know, one of the first things we look at um, as you undertake a project, re- really start looking at utilities and and just imagine. So, Forty Sixth Avenue is at grade right now, and that was really the utility corridor. So we had utilities running underneath Forty Six, both east and west, and north and south for the entirety of the the viaduct, really. That's where utilities went in. And so whether it's uh, an Excel gas line or uh, major Denver water uh, conduits uh, go through here, Uh, we've got fiber optic lines. So um, our our contractor, Kiewit Meridian Partners, um, came out here and did a whole bunch of looking at the utilities, the number of utilities we have, 
and, and they determine that they, they actually do it on a per acre basis. And so the number of utilities per acre uh, for the Central 70 project is the most they've ever dealt with on any project they've ever done in the U.S. So just, just think about that. Hewitt is a massive contractor, worldwide contractor. Uh, and this project has more utilities per acre than any other project they've ever undertaken, which is very difficult to uh, wrap your head around, but then very difficult to actually deal with, right? So how do you move all these uh, uh, utilities to make sure they're not in conflict? And uh, so that, that early uh, identification of the utilities and then coming up with a plan to relocate them uh, was really that, that first step. And, and that was when we started to, to understand how complex uh, this was really going to be and, and what kind of an undertaking we were going to have. And, and not just relocate. I mean, you have to put them in a spot where then you can also have access to them because they, I mean, you have, I mean, you have all these different, like you said, you have uh, gas, power, internet, uh, phone, all these different lines there that have to be dealt with. And then you have to make it into an easy spot that can uh, either accommodate future expansion or repairs if needed. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you think about it, the, the major north-south utilities could no, they can't just cross i-70 at any point so that really once we put traffic into the lowered section and and uh, make this change the locations for them to cross north and south are the bridges that's the only place where they can go and and so you you have crossings at you know york fillmore steel um and and, and cook monroe and so you have very defined areas where we have to get all the utilities to horizontally or east-west, but then they all have to go on those structures north-south. And yeah, absolutely uh, very challenging uh, to coordinate with them and, and to get all of these relocations done. Uh, I am happy to say that it's, it's gone almost flawlessly, frankly. Um, and so dealing with this many utilities, um, private utilities, frankly, um, who, who didn't necessarily believe our project was ever going to come to fruition, um, we, we've been able to work with them and coordinate with them and, and really get them uh, into the locations that the project has been able to manage. I'm speaking with Bob Hayes. He is the project director for one of the, the largest, I think, yes, uh, CDOT project in Colorado State history, the Central 70 project. We're talking about the engineering factors and the interesting uh, aspects of this bridge to tunnel project. You mentioned drainage. Drainage is a huge issue over there because we've had uh, issues with not only flooding in the past, but you also had some bad soils because we've had some uh, factories in that area, just on the north side of downtown Denver, that have contaminated soils in that area. So it, it, I, I, how did you deal with the drainage issue? Because that's a lot of water that has to be pulled out of that area and then flowing somewhere else. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the drainage portion of this has been... Uh, a huge challenge and and we I, so we're going from an elevated bridge to a a trench if you will so the the lowered section um and and so if you're if you're digging 35 to 40 feet down not only do you have to worry about groundwater as you install any of your storm system uh but you also have to worry about how you collect all that water and then then where does it go and so we have installed uh, a pretty unique system um where all of the rainwater that falls into the lowered section is collected into its own separate storm sewer system, uh, is then taken to the low point, so the, the lowest elevation point in that lowered section between Brighton and Colorado. Uh, and then it's taken into what is called a pump station. And so it's, 
uh, if you think about it, so the, the pump station is very deep. Um, and, and so the water goes into that pump station and uh, the name is, is pretty fitting. The pumps lift that water back up to grade. Uh, so they're going to lift it up that 35 to 40 feet. Uh, and then that, that rainwater is outlet into a water quality pond. Uh, and then that is um, allowed to go into an existing storm sewer that takes it north uh, up and discharges into the, the Platte River. So that is that is one drainage system that we've designed. The second drainage system that we've designed is all about handling the, um, so we've talked a little bit about the tunnel that is that is being designed. Uh, that, that tunnel has uh, fire life safety systems in it just in case there, there's an accident in it. And so the, the second bit of water we've got to make sure we handle is that, that water that would come from what we call our deluge system, which uh, think about sprinklers in, in a building, that essentially what it is. Uh, and so when those would turn on to control um, any fire that were to happen underneath the cover, uh, that water has to be collected, also goes down to the low point, also enters that pump station, but we've been able to build a separate chamber for that water. So there's a, a much smaller chamber that has uh, smaller pumps in it that lifts that water up and it goes into a very large storage tank. Um, so that water is not dis just discharged into the South Platte River. Uh, we want to make sure that if there were any uh, diesel spills or, you know, you name it, whatever could be potentially be in that water, that we're able to isolate that water uh, and, and really make sure to test it before we would do anything else with it. Uh, and so those are really the two main challenges that we've had um, for the drainage falling on I-70. I will say that in conjunction with the city and county of Denver uh, and their plat to park project, which is also a very massive project that was cutting off um, a lot of the flow that was headed northwest uh, through the city of Denver. They've been able to build some very massive detention ponds in order to cut that water off and, and really take it away from our project. And so uh, their project helped our project. And so in conjunction uh, with each other, we've been able to really um, cut off these 100-year flows and, and ensure that uh, I-70 is, although we are lowering it and creating uh, this lowered section, we, we uh, are not going to have a situation where it's, uh, we've got a bathtub that's just filling up with water. <laughs> because that's happened on uh, I-25 in the past, or over by Logan, we had Lake Logan, we would have, we still have over there at uh, Auraria Parkway, Colfax, sometimes we get big uh, areas of standing water over there, so uh, 6th Avenue, we've had problems in that in that area down off of the highway at 38th um, under the railroad tracks over there. So there have been flooding concerns, uh, including that section of I-70, and it's good to hear that that won't happen anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's a great improvement, and, and it, it, it's a lot of water, and we've had to build some pretty massive uh, structures uh, and detention basins in order to handle that water. So is that one of your biggest concerns? You mentioned a fire inside the tunnel, a crash, a fire. I, is that one of your biggest concerns, something like that happening in there? What about a hazmat truck that maybe spills over and, 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 and wrecks, either just spilling its contents or, again, catching fire? I know that's one of the major issues. They won't let hazardous materials trucks regularly go through the Eisenhower Johnson tunnels up along I-70 in the mountains, and they make them go across uh, Loveland Pass. So are there concerns with how many fuel trucks or other hazmat trucks might be using this tunnel? Uh, so very similar to what happens at the Eisenhower Johnson, I-70 through the stretch 
is not a hazmat route. And so they are not allowed uh, to come down I-70 through through this stretch. And so they go up 270, I-270 to uh, I-25 or I-76, and, and they really go up and around this, this stretch of I-70. And so we uh, did not design, and, and actually learning more about it, uh, it's very difficult to design any systems to be able to handle uh, that type of uh, fuel incident where if you if you lost a, a semi-trailer full of uh, diesel or gasoline, it, it's very difficult to design anything to be able to handle that. Um, however, because we're not a hazmat route, we, we have not uh, taken that under consideration. So what we designed for was, um, you know, we do have uh, 200,000 vehicles a day. Uh, a large number of those vehicles are semi-trucks carrying non-hazardous materials. Uh, and so is there a chance that there were, would be an incident where uh, one of those semi-trucks would have a fuel tank ruptured and spill that that diesel uh, onto the roadway? That's that's more the type of incident that we've designed for. Um, and so we've got a lot of uh, systems that we've installed to make sure that if that does happen, um, we, we want to make sure, first of all, that we identify it. And, and so we've got closed circuit television. We've got um, we've got actual cameras that detect heat, and so they're, they're thermal imaging cameras where if a fire were to happen, those cameras would snap directly to the incident and then alert folks at our Colorado Transportation Management Center uh, out in Golden that something has happened and then really get the, the human interface involved. So there's a lot of technology that we're putting in this tunnel, but at the end of the day, we need our humans to... Um, our operators to to make sure that that the right decision is being made with all these systems. And so, um, if there were an incident, uh, you know, is the right thing to do uh, turn on the deluge system? You know, start dumping water on it to control it. Uh, do we need our jet fans? So we've installed uh, jet fans at the entrance portal to to both uh, both of our bores. And uh, those jet fans are used for a couple of reasons. One is for air quality. Uh, if traffic does slow down within the the cover. Uh, and we have air quality monitors in there. If carbon monoxide levels get too high, uh, those jet fans will turn on and, and clear out the, the air quality. So that, that is uh, something that probably will happen on a relatively frequent basis, uh, just because we, we know there will be some congestion through there. Uh, so that's one reason the jet fans will come on. The other one would be to blow the smoke uh, from a fire. And so the, the idea being that um, we want to blow the smoke out of one end of the cover uh, to allow folks who might be trapped behind the fire a safe egress out of the tunnel. And so the idea being that um, we understand that you, when you when you blow on a fire, you can fan the flames, if you will. Um, but the combination of the jet fans creating that safe um, passageway and, and air that is breathable uh, allows people to get out of the tunnel and evacuate. But then in combination with the deluge system, we'll be dumping enough water on the fire to be able to control it until Denver Fire can show up uh, and really take command of the situation. And, and so we're hopeful there's a, a fire station very close by uh, at Brighton. We've worked very closely with Denver Fire uh, to coordinate what their response would be. And, and so they should be there within minutes to take charge of the scene. 
uh, and, and really be able to uh, put out any fires that would happen. What popped in my head right there is you're talking about these jet fans, which sound really cool, especially if we just could set up a jet fan and stand in front of it because it sounds like it would be really fun. Uh, but that air is not good is, is, is good for a fire. That, Like you said, the airflow actually could help increase the fire activity. And how fast can these fans go? Can you regulate the speed? And it really is, is interesting that you can, like you said, bring air in, bring the smoke out, but not increase the intensity of the flames. Absolutely. Yeah, so so just, just like you, when you go camping, you know, when you try and start a fire, you blow on the fire, and it, it does increase the intensity. So that that will happen um, as as we uh, have these jet fans blowing across the fire. But the, the idea is, in concert with the deluge system, uh, the, the fire will be controlled uh, well enough that it allows Denver Fire to, to show up. I think the other, uh, to your other point there, so we have nine jet fans that are mounted at each portal entry. At no time will all nine jet fans ever be on. The The ninth fan is actually a redundant fan just in case uh, one of the other fans needs to be maintained and is just out of service. Um, and then, so when we are blowing the, or turn the fans on to, to blow the air for an air quality situation, um, it'll be somewhere between one and three fans that come on. And then in a fire instance, you could turn on, it's theoretical that you could turn on all eight fans to help blow the smoke um, out of one end of the cover to uh, provide that that egress that folks would need. Um, but, but our thought is that's going to be a very short amount of time to get the tunnel evacuated. And then Denver Fire would be there to actually turn off the jet fans. So interesting. This is Bob Hayes, the project director for the CDOT Central 70 project. We were just talking about fire. Now let's move uh, to ice and snow because that's obviously prevalent here in Colorado. How do you deal with having snow falling and creating ice? You have a tunnel, so it's going to be cooler in there. You're going to actually be dragging some water in there. You're going to have some icy spots. Uh, So how do you deal with snow ice that is on either side of the tunnel and then it's dry inside? Yeah, so the good news is CDOT and all our partners, we we are very good at uh, plowing roadways, putting down uh, de-icing chemicals, um, and and really uh, clearing roadways because, as you know, we get quite a bit of snow here. And so I I think the the good news is, although we are a lowered section and you will have uh, some snow and and ice accumulating in this section, I, I don't think this will be any different uh than any other stretch of highway and so we'll be able to plow we'll be able to push the snow out of the lowered section and store it on the ends of it and so i i really do believe it'll be a very similar technique that you see uh going up and down i-25 or other parts of i-70 where you have uh, what's called echelon plowing so you um, have three or four snow plows lined up together uh, one taking the lead and then they stagger back and you can seriously plow the entire width of the highway at one time and so the the most inside plow continues to push the snow to the right uh, and then the next one catches it and pushes it to the right and so on and so forth and so we we believe strongly that uh between the drainage system we've we've put in and and our plowing techniques and our um expertise of our maintenance folks that that we are going to be able to maintain this uh, in a fashion that's no different than any other highway uh within the the front range when traffic moves underground, it has a different feel than a bridge. 
do you do you think there's going to be different or, or a, a, a time that drivers are going to have to take to get used to driving underground compared to driving above ground? Yes, yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think what we've done to be able to try and combat that is we've designed a typical section that includes very wide shoulders, um, full twelve foot lanes. Um, we've got center median lighting. Um, so, so the idea of uh, driver expectancy, right? You want a driver to be comfortable where they're driving, and that that's the way they don't slow down. That's the way they uh, just continue moving through. Um, what, whatever project you're building, right, whether it's a, an overlay or something is, as large as Central 70, it's really all about making sure that they can see that they're comfortable in their, in their surroundings um, and, and that they just they move through the project site. And so I, I think we've done a really good job of, of providing those uh, elements to folks. Um, I, I'm not naive enough to think that there won't be some slowing uh, when we make the switch from the viaduct into the lowered section. It's just, it's going to feel different. Uh, but I do think that folks uh, will become accustomed to it very quickly. Uh, and, and the geometry that we've provided and the lighting that we're providing, I, I think will make folks feel very comfortable uh, and just move right through as though uh, nothing has changed. Are tunnels easier to maintain than a bridge? They're, they're very unique to each other, right? And, and so we, I think the, the sheer number of systems that we have within the cover um, makes it more challenging to maintain. Um, all of those systems have to talk to each other. Uh, they all are tied to a single network and that network is extraordinarily complex. And so I, I think that um, just when you layer on the, from a structural aspect, they're not that much different to maintain from that civil side, but when you add in all of the technology and and, and all of the fire life safety systems we've put in this cover, um, it, it is going to be uh, imperative that we have a very intense maintenance program uh, to make sure they're all working. You mentioned this cover, and that's one of the most unique parts of this project. It's this cap on top of the interstate so that the neighborhoods on either side of the interstate can once again be connected and not have an interstate run through it. You're connected by a park at ground level. Does that part of the project pose any unique challenges more than any other tunnel? Because you have you have people, you have uh, people driving on this uh, this cap, you have people uh, recreating on this cap with a big park, and is, is that different than any other tunnel? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so we, we had to look at, and we actually wrote it in our contract requirements that we needed, uh, the design to look at the frequency of the structure. And so that frequency is all about, so if you have a large gathering on top of the cover, whether it's a soccer game at the soccer field that we're going to install or a concert at the, at the amphitheater that we're installing on top of, uh, the cover, if all of those people are jumping in unison together, um, it's, it's going to create a frequency of the structure. And so we wanted to make sure that that frequency was in a, at a level where it wouldn't bounce and, and wouldn't make folks feel uncomfortable on top of the cover. Uh, and so that was really a, a very unique portion of the design and evaluating um, how can we make this as stiff a structure as possible, um, all, all the while allowing it to still bend and flex the way it needs to. 
uh, with, as we talked about earlier, with the temperature variations. And so uh, very, very unique part of uh, that evaluation was, was that frequency. And it is a unique part of the project because it does help connect. You have uh, roads that were at grade before. You have to keep roads at grade now because all you were doing is moving the interstate from above to below. So you had to actually create new bridges, in essence, uh, and then uh, for all these crossroads across the interstate that's now underground. And so that seems like it's I mean, you're building bridges to take down a bridge to make a tunnel. It just, it's, it's, it's hard to get your mind around some of that, you know? Exactly right. But, but it's imperative that, you know, to your point on um, the, the connecting of the neighborhood and, you know, I, I-70 um, it is where it is, uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, not a lot of concern for, for some of the communities that these interstates divided. Um, there is a lot of concern for that now, and thankfully we're able to, uh, develop ideas like this and mitigations like this to hopefully stitch this neighborhood back together. Uh, but all of these bridges that, that we're building is all, all about making sure that the community is able to uh, stay connected, that they've got the mobility they need. We've uh, built over 30,000 uh, additional feet of sidewalk throughout the project. And uh, all these bridges are going to come with sidewalks and, and allow for multiple modes of transportation. Uh, and so it's it's really an exciting opportunity, I think, to to hopefully uh, restitch this neighborhood back together and and make the impacts of I seventy a little bit less. And and you could hope that some of those impacts from the highway that are lessened is the noise, because you have a highway that's right above ground that everybody can hear. And if you put it underground, hopefully it'll be a little bit quieter. So when you're enjoying a concert at that amphitheater that's on the cap, you're not going to hear the highway or the truckers below. Absolutely right. Um, you know, we've had the good fortune of uh, having tours with some folks right now because we're on the on the brink of making the switch into the lower section, and uh, we want to show people, we want to educate people about what we've been able to do over the past uh, couple years. And um, I, I like to start out the project kind of at one end or the other of the lowered section, so take people down to Colorado Boulevard and uh, get out of your vehicles and and have a chat. And it is very difficult to talk to a group. Uh, at Colorado Boulevard because of the amount of noise that is coming off of I-70. So I end up having to scream and and it's just it's just not all that pleasant. Whereas when you are able to get actually into the lowered section near the, the cover, the entryway to the cover, it, it is so much quieter. And, and so I, I really do think the, the grade change of I-70 is going to improve uh, the amount of noise that, that our, our neighborhood around us actually experiences. And and I'm, I'm hopeful that that's what happens, and, and I really do uh, believe that is going to occur. I'm speaking to Bob Hayes. He's the project director for the CDOT Central 70 Project. When traffic moves underground, as you just mentioned, that's going to be happening pretty soon. That's when some of the toughest work, I would think, happens. How do you take down a bridge, the, the bridge portion of I-70, that will be empty of traffic. So how do you take that bridge portion down while you're building the rest of the tunnel? Very carefully is <laughs> the answer. Uh, so it is, it's a very unique process. I, I think that um, a lot of engineering has gone into um, the actual process to uh, demolish the structure so that um, you know, yes, we want the bridge to come down, but we want it to come down on our terms and we don't want it just to collapse. Uh, and, and so 
we've looked very closely at the the way that we're going to have to position all of our equipment on the structure as it starts to um, whether it's either using a, a drill head to, to continue to drill at the concrete and bust it up or using what's called a, a muncher, uh, which basically just eats at the, the concrete and busts it up. Um, we, we've looked very closely at the way that um, those uh, pieces of equipment have to be spaced on the structure in order to make sure that it doesn't collapse and um, all of this is done safely. All the while, we have buildings such as Purina, which is, and, and this is not an exaggeration, it is, that structure is within inches of Purina. And so we, we have to make sure that we have um, protections in place so that uh, no random pieces of concrete or rebar, um, as we're demolishing our bridge, um, fall on any of the neighboring businesses or community. And, and so we're taking that very seriously. We're going to have uh, netting placed along the entire south side uh, of the viaduct to make sure that uh, that doesn't occur. You know, our, our number one goal here is safety, and uh, we are doing what it takes uh, to make sure that as we bring this structure down, that uh, no property is damaged and that, that no one is hurt over it. The other uh, very unique portion of this is that we've already built some of these bridges that go across, that will span across the lowered section. So whether we're talking about York or Steel or Fillmore, those bridges are already built. And so we actually have new construction that is sitting underneath uh, the viaduct. And so when you look at the technique to bring the viaduct down over, over new infrastructure that you've already built, um, that is going to be very surgical. Uh, and we're going to have to be very careful as we saw cut the pieces of the viaduct from above and actually lift them off with a crane. And then you're able to process it on the ground and, and break up the concrete and uh, take it to the recycling plant. But that is going to be very, uh, very surgical um, in its execution and, and very, frankly, it's exciting. As an engineer, it's going to be really, really neat to, to be able to go out and watch this stuff come down. As you were talking about the Purina plant, we, we can't have the Purina plant that makes all that dog food stop pumping it out, out all that great smell that we have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever the wind's blowing in from the north, we get to smell it across downtown. Absolutely. Yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> we know the snow is coming when we get to smell that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> have your guys been able to uh, deal with all that smell and, and being next to the highway? Is that has that bothered them at all? Uh, you know, a little bit, but um, I, I was actually on a tour uh, just a couple days ago with um, a city councilwoman, and, and they were telling me that they've actually worked with Purina to install some uh, additional filters that uh, were supposed to make that smell a little better. I, they asked what we had experienced on the project. Yes, we still smell it, uh, but, but do I think it's as bad as it was uh, many years ago? I, I don't know, really. Personally, I think it's slightly better, but uh, can certainly still smell it. Has COVID been um, any kind of a challenge for you guys? Obviously, it lowered traffic when we had the shutdown a year ago where you weren't having to deal with as much uh, highway traffic. I'm sure that helped maybe uh, get a little bit more of the work done a little bit quicker. Yeah, so it's it's been kind of a catch-22, right? I don't, I don't it's, it's hard for anybody to sit here and say that uh, COVID has been uh, a blessing and, you know, not, none of us like the pandemic and, and the shutdown that occurred. Um, and so from a, a safety standpoint, we have been very cautious about, um, you know, crews wearing masks, um, anyone who uh, has been in contact with someone that was positive or they're positive themselves, that entire crew gets quarantined 
for, for the recommended period of days. And so it was very important to us um, that just from a, a COVID spreading standpoint, we, we did not want the project to shut down because we had a massive outbreak on the project. And so we've been uh, very cautious about that and been very successful at, at isolating uh, the crews as uh, someone was test, did, did test positive. Uh, we were able to pull them aside and, and wait for the, everyone to get healthy again. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, been a little tricky. You know, you'd lose a bridge crew for a couple weeks uh, who was working on one of your structures. And, and so that could slow you down uh, potentially. But then to your point on the reduced traffic volume, we were able to close multiple lanes of I-70 during the day through rush hour and not have any backups. I mean, anyone that drives this highway knows that is unheard of. Uh, and, and so when there are accidents on our highway, it closes just one lane and you have backups for miles. Uh, and so to be able to close multiple lanes uh, for entire day stretches uh, is just, I, I mean, it's it, it's kind of eerie actually to, to go out there and drive it with so few cars on it. But um, absolutely, we were able to progress uh, some of the construction aspects uh, much more quickly than we would have uh, had COVID not come along. And so I, I think overall, um, we've been able to manage it, manage the safety side and, and actually get some additional work done. So um, if if you could ever say there was a blessing, I, I guess that might be one of them. And traffic, obviously, as you've seen, has come back. It's come roaring back, not quite as high as it was pre-pandemic levels, but you, I'm sure you've seen the traffic rebound. Do you think we're going to start to see more of this traffic rebound? What is your traffic prediction for the summer, for the fall, and for maybe the next couple of years? Yeah, it is, it is absolutely back. I think so we have several traffic counters on the project, and, and the last time I looked at them, I think we were back at 85 or 90% of what uh, the pre-pandemic numbers were. Uh, you know, I'm that um, some of this telecommuting and working from home for at least a few days a week is going to help um, with with some of that and that we don't get back quite to the 100% level that we were before. Uh, I think we all know that uh, we've got quite a bit of congestion on uh, all of our interstates and roadways in, in Metro Denver. And so I'm hopeful that, um, you know, we look at alternatives to, to necessarily getting back in the car and, and adding to uh, that congestion. But um, it, it's back. I mean, I, I, as I commute into work, you, you are uh, no longer guaranteed that it's going to take 20 minutes. It, yesterday morning, it took 45 minutes because there was an accident on I-70. And it's, it's definitely, uh, it feels much more like normal, uh, quote unquote, than, uh, than it did a year ago. Do you think this project is going to be your swan song? It, it was for Tony uh, <laughs> when he started this project. Are you hanging up your orange hard hat after a project like this? Or are you going to be looking for something even bigger and bolder? You know, it, it's as a, as a young engineering student to, to be able to work on a project like this uh, would have been a dream, right? So th this is just an incredible opportunity for me, uh, for my entire team. We've got an unbelievable team on this project and uh, it is so fun to be able to deliver something like this with them. Um, I, I don't want to hang up my orange hard hat. I hope there's something <laughs> bigger and better. And, and I hope all the lessons that we've learned on this, that, that we can take them and implement them on the next project. And I think that's that's good for CDOT. It's good for the, the taxpayers of Colorado. And, and so I, I sh sure hope we're able to do that. Well, I'm telling you, this was a fascinating conversation for me, Bob. I, I appreciate your time, your expertise, and 
all your uh, uh, all the information that you provided about this because it's to, at least to me it is it's pretty interesting. Bob Hayes, the project director for CDOT, uh, the Central Seventy project. Thanks again for your time here today. Absolutely, Jason. Thanks for having me. Did you ever think a tunnel could be so techno- technologically advanced? I mean, that's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Um, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how it all works out as they're going to be shifting the traffic here in a couple of days. Tomorrow, I am scheduled to talk uh, uh, via Zoom with Dr. Paul Murphy. And Dr. Murphy is a paleontologist with Paleo Solutions here in Denver. And the reason I bring this up is because during one of my tours, I asked Bob if they found anything interesting while they were digging. And, and he told me they found a camel. Now, when you think Colorado, you don't think camel, right? Colorado is really not known for their camels. So I wanted to know more about it. And actually, they, they told me they found a fossil, uh, a, a, a piece of a tooth from a camel that lived maybe uh, 10 or 20,000 years ago here around Colorado. And I thought that was fascinating. So I invited Dr. Murphy to be uh, to do a Zoom call, and he said yes. And so I'm going to talk to him about that. And I'll bring that interview uh, to you next week because I thought it was super interesting. Because how often do you get to dig into a ground that hasn't been touched right around the city core? And this is one of those rare opportunities to uh, see what's under the city that hasn't really been touched since the city was uh, built, what, 150 or so years ago. So uh, I think that'll be a really interesting, I think that'll be a really interesting conversation. That'll be uh, next time here on the show. You can always contact me, remember, at uh, 303-832-0217. All the links, all the numbers right there on the description of the show. Thanks again for being here. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, I'm Jason Luper, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and, as always, happy motoring.